God is coming in the form of man to rescue men from God's wrath. That is the Christmas story. Are you ready to sink your teeth into scripture and get a bulldog grip on its truth? Listen on some doctrine and get bulldogmatic. Here is your host. The scriptures say this was supposed to happen. I guess we kind of almost have to put our try to put ourselves in Joseph's place. Here he was. Uh, he was about to be married soon. He finds out that his betrothed is with child. An angel appears to him in a dream. This is uh, not something that happens every every day. And then then it says that you will call him. Uh, he his name will be Jesus because he's going to save his people from his sins. I mean, this is a lot to place on the shoulders of right. a man. Yeah, all and, at once. Yeah, and a lot of emotions going on there. You're wrestling with your your need to be obedient to God and His Word. You're you're wrestling with the the all the disappointment uh, of. of um, you, you know, uh, the, the the disappointments related to this relationship. It's a lot. And then you have this dream where an angel appears. It's not something that happens to everybody every day. Uh, and, and you're trying to process that. Yeah, it's a whole lot to to put on there. Uh, and, and unlikely that he would be able to figure it all out. So Christ is about to come into Joseph's life. Uh, when Christ comes into our life, is it costly? Does it cost us anything? It, it should. It, it really should. And again, I think this is part of what's been lost in the American church. Uh, a, a large percentage of the American church, there's no reference to any sort of change or sacrifice or self-denial. Right. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you have to take up your cross. And yet we see millions of people who say, I prayed a prayer, I believe. And their lives go right on with exactly as they always have. Nothing changes, uh, nothing in their schedule changes, and they think they are believers. And I, I do think I'm not going to get an opportunity this Christmas to talk about these things because we're in this series. Uh, but but I think it's something to be, and, and again, this book would be an excellent resource for Bible study groups and 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 churches and Sunday school classes to unpack some of that kind of, this is what happens when Christ comes into your life. The world is turned upside down. Well, Dr. Ferguson goes on uh, to, to his next chapter, which is called, What's in a Name? And of course, uh, I'll reread uh, verse 21. It says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So um, we talked about the genealogy in chapter one, uh, the previous verses of chapter one. And if we go back and look through there, there's no one named Jesus in the genealogy. Now, as we know, a lot of times uh, a child is named after one of their ancestors, but there's no one named Jesus. Um, so we see that it was, was it God that chose the name of his son? Yes, but we, I think there we have to remember that Jesus is the English transliteration of the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua, right. 
God is salvation. Mm -hmm. So Jesus would have been in his day, they would have called him uh, in the Jewish pronunciation, Yeshua, okay, which is Joshua. Uh, For those who read the King James Bible, you will read in the book of Acts where it talks about Jesus in the wilderness with the people. And he's talking about Joshua, okay? But the word Joshua is brought over into English to, to be Jesus. It's not talking about Jesus of Nazareth. That's why in the scriptures, it talks about Jesus of Nazareth because there were other okay. Joshuas running around, I right. see. So that distinguishes uh, Yeshua of Nazareth from all the others. So, so it, it isn't the idea that God named him. He gave him a name. Uh, and, and when you understand it in, in the way that Joseph would have heard it in the Hebrew, his name shall be called Joshua, which means God is salvation because God will save his people from their sins. Okay. So that's why he, that's why that name, that name is applied. Dr. Ferguson says that Jesus is not only a name, it's who he is. Now, what does he mean by that? I, I would again go with that, the idea that, that Yeshua and the understanding of the people, they would, they would have, they would have understood that. And it, it's, it is a bit of an indictment at that point upon the people because Yeshua, Joshua, God is salvation. And here he is doing all these things that the Bible predicts the Messiah would do. And they couldn't figure it out. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why when I first became a Christian, people would talk about the, the name of Jesus. There's no name like that anywhere. And nobody's ever named that. And then I would watch some Spanish television. And I'd hear them talking about Jesus. Yeah. And I'd say, wait a minute. It's spelled the same way. you know. Yeah. And that's because it is, uh, it, it's, it's, Jesus is the English form of the word Joshua. Okay. And, and it means God is salvation. And this is what God does. He saves his people. And Jesus is the Savior from sin. Now, we also hear uh, that Jesus is called Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. Now, where does that come from? What what does that mean? Okay, Christ means the anointed one, which is the Greek word for the Messiah. Messiah. The Old Testament Messiah in Hebrew is pronounced Yeshua HaMashiach, the, Jesus the Messiah, uh, and the Greek word for which simply means the anointed one, okay? The high priest in the Old Testament was anointed with the oil at top to represent his office. The Messiah is the anointed one of God. And when you come into the New Testament, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah is the way the Jewish people would have understood that. Uh, so that's the Greek rendering. It's also important for people to understand Jesus Christ is not, Christ is not his last name. Right. It is a title. Right. Jesus, the Messiah. Right. There are a couple of passages in, in the Bible that actually say that, I think in Acts, Jesus, the Christ. Okay. But even when that article, the, isn't there, that's the understanding. Jesus, the, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Yeah. Uh, the, even the demons, by the way, use that term. They say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. They understand his messianic role. And that's what the Christ means. It's the same New Testament title for Messiah. Has the meaning of his name changed at all over the last, since his birth? 
No, no. He is the Messiah. He ever he will always be heralded as the Messiah of God. It's one of those passages in the book of Ephesians where Paul says that that God wants to reveal his glory through the church forever. And and the church will forever be glorifying the work of Christ. So his his identity as Messiah and deliverer and savior will never change. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. I'm sure you're very familiar with that, but it reads, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the name... Jesus the Christ, I mean, his name and his title, that will never change in one day. Well, what's, what's the significant? Okay, well, now, this now, now we first, were, now as we're, far as the coming of Christ, the birth okay. of Christ. So, so it's, it's more involved than I can lay out. I'll just give you the, basically when it says he's given him a name above every name, that is the name of God. Okay, so it's not just Jesus now. He is identified with God. Right. And that's the name that no other human can ever have, is the name of God. And that in that passage that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, that comes from Isaiah. And directly after that, I, or, or directly before that in Isaiah's uh, book, he says, I will not share my glory with another. So that it identifies Christ with the Father. They're one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Triune God. It is that name, not just the earthly name Joshua that's being given to Christ, but to that human who has fulfilled the purpose of God as the Messiah, he now shares the title God by merit of his work of salvation. He already shared it in his divine essence and oneness with the Father. But now, as the human redeemer, he shares that title as well. And that's the name that's above. So it's not Jesus isn't the name, but at the name of Jesus, every knee and every 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 tongue, every tongue should confess and every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus because of that recognition. Now, this is God. This is not just a human redeemer. This is God the Son. Say. And that's why it's appropriate for Christians to worship Jesus because he is one with the Father. It's not idolatry. If you make it as the Jehovah Witnesses do, that Jesus is a created being, that means we're worshiping a creature. Right. But because he is one with the Father, and by virtue of his work, God exalts the human. This is tricky. God exalts the humanness of Christ and gives him the name of God. Okay. Wow. And this is all in the Christmas story, it's man. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, I talking about the Christmas story in the birth of Christ. Do we see the Trinity? Uh, we, we certainly do see the Trinity because God the Father sends God the Son who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their triune mystery bringing about this this whole concept of salvation. 
Yeah. God's word is wonderful. It's, oh, it's it, incredible. It, it is. Anybody who, I, I just, again, I, I don't want to be judgmental, but I feel sorry for anyone who says, I, I've heard it all. I've been in church all my life. Right. I was talking to some of the ladies after church a few weeks ago and brought that up. And, and people will say that, well, I've been in church all my life. I've heard it all. You may have heard all your pastor was capable of telling you, but you have not heard it all. You have not touched it. This series of Leviticus, even for myself, I'm as I'm preparing for this, I'm I'm discovering stuff and I'm thinking, wow, this is so rich. It's incredible. And, and the it's... same thing is true with with the Christmas story. And what's un, so unfortunate in our day again, we're we're so busy. There's so much commercialism, but to just and we will get this privilege in, in our eternal future. But just to be able to sit down with and get rid of all the trappings and just think about what is happening here. God is coming in the form of man to rescue men from God's wrath. That is the Christmas story. What an yeah. incredible God we serve. Incredible. Well, getting back, you had talked about uh, Isaiah in uh, the next chapter. Dr. Ferguson says, Isaiah have foretold him. So uh, he goes on to verses 22 uh, through 23 in Matthew chapter 1. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel Well. Well, here again, we see another name right. for our Lord. He, uh, Jesus has many names, right. does he not? Yeah. And we see a lot of them in, in Isaiah yeah. uh, itself. Yeah. Uh, so, so what, again, if, if Jesus is in fact God, then all the titles applied to God mm -hmm. apply to him. Right. And so the God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, is, a, is an appropriate title. He isn't just a man representing God. He is God. Uh, uh, it, it's that double-edged sword. He is God representing man, and and he is and, and he is God in the form of man. Exactly. God is with us. It isn't just a human who happens to be specially gifted to speak for God. It is God himself. So this verse tells us exactly who Jesus yeah, is. Yeah. He's God in the he, flesh. He's God in the flesh. And again, you go to all the other passages. Uh, Isaiah 35 is an example where it says the lame shall speak and the, the or the, the deaf, the dumb shall speak and the deaf shall hear and the lame shall leap for joy. And then you look at the life of Christ and he's healing cripples and he's healing deaf people. And and what is and what does Isaiah say in that passage? Your God will come. And then he gets down this chapter 53 or chapter, that's earlier in chapter nine. I think he says, uh, God with us, Emmanuel, God is with us. And, 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 and uh, so yes, yeah, so all the names of God apply to Christ because he is God. So Joseph is getting a wonderful, uh, he is getting comfort and joy. Yeah, he should be getting comfort and joy. Is is God's timing always perfect? From his perspective, yes. <laughs> From ours, not so much. Not so much. No, no, it's not so much. Um, but but this is the wonder of God that he he does all things well, 
And it is only our human, it is the limitation of our time on earth that makes us look at everything from a human perspective of time. God is never late. He's never early. He's right exactly when he wants something to happen. It happens. Uh, Paul says that in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Amen. So Dr. Ferguson says that God works in our humanity. Mary was passive, not active. She couldn't do it on her own. Right. So can we save ourselves? Uh, This is kind of a redundant question. Can we save ourselves? Or is our salvation all of God? It, it, is, it is all of God. This is one of the things that I really appreciate about the Reformed Church in stressing that, that it is His work. He saves us. The reason that it will not fail is because He is doing it. Uh, you get into that whole, well, we have free will. We respond uh, to what God is doing. Right. We do not create God's action right. by our response. Right. That's an excellent way of it's, putting it. It's a, it's a totally different thing. And uh, so, no, it's Mary could do nothing but say, as you, as you will, Lord. That's all she could do. Exactly. Is this is this what Christmas is all about? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the intervention of God, doing what only God can do to, to give his people what they could never hope to have uh, in and of themselves. It is his work, his gift, his plan, and he, to him belongs all the glory. Dr. Ferguson goes on to verse 24, which reads, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. So we see obedience, obedience. here. Uh, so Joseph, uh, Dr. Ferguson says Joseph heard the word of God. He believed the word of God. And he obeyed the word of God, whatever the cost may be. How should this fit into Christian celebration of the birth of Christ? Well, that's that's a broad, many uh, topic thing. The most fundamental, of course, is we need to, we should use Christmas as we use Easter and as we use communion as a reevaluation of our commitment to God. Am I really obeying God? Uh, I'm thinking, I think now about how many people are, how many people this year, and this, this is not meant to be a criticism. How many people, how many people who say they're Christians, perhaps are Christians, will spend a fortune on packages and gifts most of which, many of which, some of which will be returned, neglected, and will not spend a dime helping the poor. Uh, there's an act of obedience there. They're re- re- realigning my finances to enable me to do something for people who are in, truly in need, and not just heaping more upon some of my family members. You probably, again, this is very subjective, but in a lot of cases, already have more than they need anyway. Uh, turn Christmas into an act of obedience. Now that's going to flop with a lot of people because they have come to define their Christian faith with the exorbitance of their Christmas giving to family and friends. Mm-hmm. 
and not in the sense of sharing the message beyond, beyond, beyond the church, uh, beyond the family. Uh, there is a call for obedience, submission, and the, the sharing of the gospel uh, at this time like all the others. How receptive to the call of obedience do you think Christians are? Well, I touched on I touched on this Sunday with respect to selective obedience. We are very re responsive when it's something I want to obey in, but when I'm asked to do something I don't want to do, and and I always I try to make this point frequently. We're not talking about ministry calling, okay? I'm not saying that you, John Doe, have to do this, serve in this role in the church. That's not what we're talking But there are day-to-day -day acts of obedience that you can't choose to opt out of. You, you, that, that's what I think. If a, I think there are people who are very receptive, well, I'll do this. Okay. And again, in the service of the church, that's different. But in living the Christian life, there is no selective obedience. Right. God says, do this. You must do it. And I don't think we are receptive to that kind of obedience as we should be. Joseph does, is not in a position of saying, all right, well, I'll marry her, but I'm not going to provide for her. Can you imagine him saying that? I, I will marry her, but, but, but she, you know, she's had a baby, but different way. I'm not going to be faithful to her. This is the kind of nonsense you hear that we can pick and choose what we will and will not obey regarding God. We are free to pick and choose what we will do in his kingdom because he has called each of us to different roles. Right. But there are some roles that apply to every Christian, yes. and we have no choice in those. Obedience means you said it, Lord, and I will do it. So uh, getting back to Joseph, he, as we said before, he's kind of like a almost silent. In scripture, we only see him once in the gospel outside the birth narrative, Dr. Ferguson says. He says, but he is a wonderful illustration of John Newton's hymn. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieve. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Do you think Joseph fits that verse from that hymn? Uh... I, I think you could extend it to Joseph, certainly, and a host of others, though uh, I think Newton's situation was so much more, from a sinful perspective, so much more uh, substantive, if that's the right way. When Newton, when Newton writes that song and says, uh, the grace that saved a wretch like me, he was a slave ship. He transported slaves from Africa to the colonies to England. And uh, when he came to Christ, he recognized the wretchedness of what he had been involved in. I, I without, without diminishing or, or undermining anything Dr. Ferguson has said there, I, I would not myself have drawn that comparison because I think Newton's situation was so much more dire than Joseph's. Well, Dr. Ferguson uh, says that Joseph was the man that God chose and prepared to protect and nurture his 
incarnate son. Uh, so is Joseph, we don't hear much about him, but is he unimportant in the birth of Christ? No, no. Uh, or in the life of Christ. Right. Not only the birth, but the life. Uh, not, 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 at, not at all unimportant. Again, this is one of those things that is a product of our culture. We think to be important, I must be known. Um, it would be great if in God's plans, he gives us some measure of notoriety. But of course, what we have to remember is all that's going to fade. It's going to be gone. Uh, a decade, uh, it, 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 unless we have a huge family, uh, a decade after we're gone, most people would have forgotten we were here. Um, that's, that is a part of our, again, of our culture. I, I did a little minute message a message years ago uh, that said God has anonymous people doing important work because when you go through the Bible every now and again you will hear you will read this a certain person said they don't tell you the name of the person they don't tell you where the person was from but what they did was important uh, and and so there are all kinds of unnamed faces that are vital to the kingdom of God. And Joseph is one of those people. Right. He's mentioned almost in passing. You never uh, are given a description of his hobbies, his likes. <laughs> you know, we talk about the frustrations of social media and Facebook. And you go on there and I'm in a relationship with this person. I went to school here. I did this. I did that. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying there's anything morally wrong with that. But I'm saying that culture has created almost this thing where if you don't know something about the person, they must not be important. And um, th that's simply not true. Joseph is super important. There are other people we, we encounter in Scripture in passing. You never hear from them again. Uh, some of them were given hints to them having had some kind of great epiphany but the reality is that lots of people who are never heard of are super uh, super important in God's plan I'm yes. thinking right now not to hold up Billy Graham as an example uh, necessarily because there are some people who are critical about the, about the person nevertheless the person who brought him to salvation. Most people never heard of that individual, but he was instrumental in bringing Graham to Christ, and Graham was instrumental in lots of other people coming to Christ, right. and Graham's son, Franklin, is still instrumental in ministering around the world through Samaritan's Purse in times of, of crisis. But if you ask who was the guy who brought Billy Graham to salvation, most of the people couldn't tell you. And that's, there are anonymous people who have done and are doing tremendous work for God's kingdom. Right. And in the judgment, those people's names will be heard and, and, and heard with a well done. Right. Even though nobody else knew about you, I knew about you. Exactly. And, this, and what is that passage? Um, what is that passage? Do not, we, do not weary in well doing. For in due season we shall reap, because God knows who you are. Right. God knows who you are, and 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 
what you're doing. That makes me think of the many, uh, I can't even give a number of thousands, tens of thousands, possibly, even more maybe, of faithful pastors that are shepherding the right. flock that God has given them, right. faithfully expositing and preaching God's word yeah. in, in the pulpits to the, to the sheep, feeding right. their sheep, right. feeding the flock. God knows you. God uh, appreciates you, yes, absolutely. and uh, your obedience to Him is is will not go unnoticed. No. And, that, and that's a great illustration because for every Paul Washer or Josh Bice or John MacArthur or John Piper, there are a hundred thousand unnamed faces right. who are absolutely as faithful and diligent and uh, desperate for God to use them. Exactly. To speak life to their congregations. So their if, flock. if you're listening to this and you're a pastor, thank you. Yes. God bless you in your service to him. And if you're listening to this and you have a pastor like that, go to him and thank him yes. for what he's doing right. for God. And lift him up. Uh, help him. Help him in his ministry. Be an encouragement to him because it's not an easy job. It's right. Definitely not. Well, let's go back uh, to Matthew, and we're going to take a look at the uh, verses 24 through 25. And uh, Dr. Ferguson talks about Joseph's restraint. They read, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So it says he knew her not, uh, Pastor. What does that mean? That's uh, that's the biblical euphemism for sexual intercourse. He did not engage in sexual intercourse until she gave birth. And I, I, I'm not prepared to uh, unpack all the theological implications of that. You would think, well, she's pregnant now. How, what harm is it? But there's a sanctity to this birth that requires that extra kind of of commitment right and um, very 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 important uh, act of, of restraint that we would argue we could argue that God's supernaturally empowered okay it's not just a matter of don't do this it's a matter of God not letting it happen and if person if someone needed an illustration scripturally I'll take them back to the book of Genesis where uh, the second time Abraham lies about Sarah and uh, God appears to Abimelech and says you're a dead man she's another man's wife and the man says I didn't know that and God says I know that you didn't and that is why I have restrained you from touching so there is that concept of Joseph being supernaturally empowered to um, uh, to to wait till the Christ child was born to fulfill all the implications of this holy uh, birth. Does that uh, kind of touch on the principle we've talked about in the past? What God requires, God provides. Yes. Yes, an excellent, excellent illustration. And I can never remember whether it was Luther, I think it was Augustine who said, command what you will, but it might have been Martin Luther, command what you will, 
but will what you command. Don't don't leave me out there. And again, we're back to salvation being the work of God. He not only commands us to obey, he empowers us to do so. so. And as I use that scripture Sunday morning from chapter 3 of Ephesians, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I unpacked that a few weeks earlier. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is talking about, the writer, whether it be Paul or not, is talking about all the blessings God's given us. The last three chapters are, here's how God wants you to live. And before God tells, and before Paul, the writer tells us how to live, he says, oh, by the way, God can give you the power to live like this. Right. That's the essence of that, that statement. It's a bridge between here's the blessings, here's how you should live, and here's the power to do so. So, so yes, the idea that we cannot serve God faithfully just doesn't hold up the scripture. Well, looking at Joe. Now, 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 let me, let me pause. Yes, we may not be able to serve him perfectly, but we can serve him faithfully. faithfully. We can get back in there every day and try to do what God has called us to do and rely upon his grace to do it. Okay. Amen. Amen. Well, getting back to Joseph's restraint and applying it to, to us as we live now, God creates sex to be simply a satisfaction of our own lustful desires. Oh, wow, great. Uh, so that is not the only the only dimension, okay? Uh, certainly there is, and this is one of those subjects. So for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to avoid sexual immorality, let every man have his own wife. So that the solution of sexual lust is marriage. Okay, it is, uh, and therefore there is a place for uh, the restraint of sexual lust through a healthy sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. But there is much more to it in the mysticism of the union of man and wife, and the symbolism of how my faithfulness to my wife sexually mirrors Christ's faithfulness to His church. This is why Paul, the writer of Ephesians, again says, I speak a mystery when he talks about men and women being one flesh. He says, I speak a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Our physical union, which is, which is the epitome of being made in the image of God, and is why sexuality must always be restricted to male-female sexuality, Male and female made in the image of God, becoming one flesh, mirror the, the image of God in ways we cannot fully comprehend. So, so but sex is, is a sacred act. It does serve in our fallen capacity to restrain lust, but that is not its only, that is not its only purpose. There's much deeper than that. Uh, with respect to what you said about Joseph's restraint and uh, that the maybe a holy aspect to it. Was there anything wrong with, uh, he had taken her as his wife. Was there anything wrong with him having sex? That's, that's the, that's the intriguing point. We can't answer completely. Uh, obviously if, if, if we argue that God restrained him from sexual relations with his wife for some reason, then, then there, there would have been. Okay. But in the normal course of events, no, it would have been nothing wrong with him having sexual relations with his wife, uh, going 
going forward after that event. And, and typically, there would be nothing wrong with that. That that little thought there brings up the whole concept that, and, and it comes into the issue of conscience. If God says to me, don't do something, even though it may be right for everyone else, for me it's wrong, right. okay? And I cannot do it, even though if, even though it's a, it's a normal thing. If God says to me, you aren't to do that, then it becomes sin for me. So, so what is absolutely normal in, in, in sexual relationships? Mm-hmm. And let's take it a step further. So uh, suppose God called me to a celibate single life. He says, I do not want you to have sex for the rest of your life. Uh, he's going to give me that ability. But even though sex between husband and wife is absolutely normal, and I don't think he would tell a married man not to have sex with his wife. Make sure I get that clear. But it would be wrong for me to seek a wife for sexual fulfillment if God has said to me, I don't want you to engage in that anymore. And this is, of course, a hypothetical, but it brings out the understanding that when God requires something of me specifically, personally, it would be a sin for me to do that. Let me apply it to ministry. If God called me to pastoral work, and that's what he wants me to do, then it would be a sin for me to go out and evangelize, or for me to start a ministry of which I'm the CEO of this ministry. Because God says, no, I called you to pastor this church. You see that? I'm not saying it's wrong for another pastor to evangelize, or another pastor to be the CEO of a ministry. It would be wrong for me to be that. Because God says, I want you to be the pastor of this this church, and that's all I want you to do. See what I mean? Right. Uh, so God has different callings for different different Christians. callings for different people, and that's where where I said earlier. So if God has called someone to be single, has God called everyone to be married? No, I don't think so. I think there are people whom God has called to a single lifestyle. Uh, we would even, we would argue, obviously, that would extend to homosexuals because they they are not. You can't engage in homosexual sex. You might say I'm inclined that way, but you cannot do that biblically. Okay, so he would call the person to celibacy, but he doesn't call every person to celibacy or every person to singleness, because his the bigger goal is be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. That command is still in effect, but. God does at points call people out and they are to be devoted to him and to him alone. Is um, the Bible doesn't say that it's wrong, so I'm going to do it. Is that a biblical principle? Mm. Or I've heard people say, well, you know, there's the Bible says there's nothing wrong with it, so I'm going to do it. Uh yeah, that, that really comes to a case-by-case case thing because sometimes what, what people say the Bible doesn't say, the Bible really does say if you if you look at, uh, if you unpack the Scriptures, if you unpack the Scriptures on that subject, you might find the Bible does say very much about that. I'm afraid that many times people who say that kind of stuff uh, are, are very shallow in scripture. They've never really searched it out. They've never looked for it. 
they're kind of looking for an out. They're looking for an out. It's it's kind of the argument I make about people who say, well, I can't find a good church. Well, there's good churches out there. They yes. may be few and far between. You might have to drive an hour and a half, but there are good ones. How hard have you looked? Right. Or is it, what is your definition of a good church? If the word of God is coming forth consistent to the historic church, I don't care if it's a dry as a West Texas wind. That is a good church. Okay. It doesn't have any bang. It doesn't have any flash. It doesn't have a very emotional pastor. Maybe they don't have good music, but they're preaching the word of God faithfully. That is a good church. What you mean is you can't find a church that fits all your criteria of a good church. And that becomes then an excuse rather than, uh, I really, I really can't find a good church. You have to, you, they're, they're, I understand that challenge, and I do know that there are, my own experience in our congregation is teaching me the number of people who've never been taught anything in their lifetime as Christians. Um, I just had Sunday after this message on the propitiation and God's satisfying of his wrath in the death of Christ, someone come up to me who's been in church all their life uh, and a long life at that. I said, I have never had that explained. Never. So, um, so go to church. You'll learn. Something you got to learn know. something. Yeah. But, yes. but I understand that there are a lot of churches that are not doing it. But I do think that sometimes we go back to your point. I, I, the Bible doesn't condemn this. Uh, we need to talk about the, the, what this is because in, the Bible may in fact have very much to say about that particular subject. Well, going on, uh, Dr. Ferguson says that Joseph uh, chose to live wisely for the glory of God and for the blessing of others. Um, how can we do that as Christians? He actually gives uh, four questions that we should ask when we're faced with a decision. I want your comments on each question okay. and how it applies to our life and, and how it would work out. Okay. He said the first question is, is it helpful? Uh, is it helpful? That's a great question. And if I were to pick something off the top of my head, I would say uh, in the area of gossip, does this conversation help anybody? Now, I know that sometimes we need to vent. I know that sometimes there's it is appropriate for us to express uh, differences of opinion, etc. But sometimes that slips over into attacking people, undermining people, uh, making insinuations, etc. Uh, so I would say, yeah, does does this does this comment help? Does this uh, action help, or is it hindering? Does it, does it really further the church and further the, the kingdom or is it just something to fuss about? Right. Okay. Great he, question. He goes on and he says, will it enslave me? That is an excellent question. Here's something again, it goes kind of back to what you were saying a moment ago. The Bible really doesn't say that, but, but does this thing have the power to become God to me? I, I've used this illustration a hundred times with respect to, uh, Alcohol, is it wrong to drink? I cannot give you a scripture that says you don't, you should never touch alcohol, but I can tell you that some people are more inclined to become addicted to it. Right. 
if I have even the question that that's going to happen, then I shouldn't go down that road. It isn't. You do not need, despite what you might hear from people, you do not need alcoholic beverages to have a, a, a wonderful, meaningful life. There are tens of millions of people who've never touched it right. and their lives are rich and full. If you say, I have to have it, you're enslaved already. There's a difference between saying occasionally, I like to have a beer or I like to have a glass of wine with dinner. If you say, I must have it, you're now enslaved to it. Right. And is that in, uh, and that applies beyond, of course, right, alcohol. alcohol to any addiction. Any right. addiction. When you say, I, I, other than food and water uh, and air, mm-hmm. uh, to say, I must have this. Uh, I think that I think that has that is a form of slavery. Right. His next uh, uh, question, he says, we should ask is how will it affect others? Yeah. Now, uh, I'll add this question: Are there uh, there? We've said in the past there are no lone wolf Christians. So right. Christians, uh, uh, we are part of the body of Christ. So when we ask how will it affect others, is that a a relevant question. Yeah. How will my indifference to church and, and it, it's a broader it's a broader context. Uh, how will my indifference to church encourage other people to pursue God? If I'm going around saying, well, you don't have to do that. I'm advocating disobedience because God does say we should gather together. It's, it's no question the Bible teaches that. Uh, we can go back to the, the idea of drinking. Uh, Paul in Romans says, if, my, if, if meat offends my brother, I'll never eat meat again. He doesn't mean that he never would eat meat himself, but he would never eat meat in front of the brother whose weakness prevents him from being able to function in that setting. That is when we talk about serving God. How is this going to affect others? Will it build them up? Will it encourage them? Will it discourage them? Will it tear them down? And you have to be careful there. It's a broad category of things that we could get into, and if we're not careful, we end up in legalism. But yes, that's a valid question. How is this going to affect my children, my wife, my church members, my 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 uh, my, my society, my community, my blah blah blah? Right. Well, you answered the uh, final. His final question is: Does it edify? And, uh, right. Does it, you talk about yeah. building building up other Christians. Does it encourage, build up, um, help, strengthen? I we can get a hundred things out, but those are excellent questions. Right. Uh, with all due respect to Dr. Ferguson, I love his work, and I have a question that I think should be added to that. Okay. Is, uh, what? What we're trying to decide, or what we're talking about, does it glorify God? Right, right. I would, I would, yeah. In defense of Doctor Ferguson, as you're saying, I think, I think he would say those four things together do it, encompass that. But yeah, bringing that question in at the end as a, as an undergirding, this is the goal to glorify God, and that requires me to, to ask these questions of myself. It, it. I want to live to glorify God. How can I do that? Well, answer answer these four questions. That would help you arrive at that. Right. And of course, we've been talking about Christmas time, the birth of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, who God in the flesh. Um, 
as Jesus lived out his life, his human life in the flesh, um, did he do that to please himself? No, no, no. In fact, there's there's even a scripture in the New Testament where it says uh, he didn't live to please himself, but the reproaches that fell on God fell on him. His life was lived for God, and this is the calling that we have to live our life for God. Right. Uh, so, so no, we don't. We don't just live to please ourselves. We live to please others. Right. Or we please the Lord first right. by ministering to others. Let's ministry. say it like that. Right. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so, as we look back over the life of Joseph, we see that he heard God. He heard the word of God. He received the word of God. He obeyed the word of God. Is that does that kind of sum up? Yeah, that, the Christian that, that, yeah, you can really put it just in that kind of simplicity. Now, again, when we get into uh, particular doctrinal emphases or a particular unpacking of a passage of scripture, etc., then we might want to go. We might have to go further. But those three are the framework. Everything should work within that. Hear the word, obey the word, uh, and and, and that be obedient. Yeah, be obedient to the word. Be obedient. So, as we've talked about Christmas and the life of Joseph, we hope that it's been a blessing in your life, and it would be our prayer that the Lord would transform us more into His image, that we would become more like Christ himself. And I hope that's your prayer right. as well. So, Pastor, did you have anything to add before we uh, move on to the to the next section of the book, which is uh, the visitors? He talks about the vi- visitors, I believe. So, um, no, I think we've covered a lot today. So, We hope that you're having a, a joyous holiday season and remember Christ Amen. this Christmas and the meaning of Christmas. Pastor, God bless you. Bless you, you, my friend. Thank you very much. To be continued, we will continue this conversation in the next episode. And it keeps getting more and more interesting. Be sure to like and share this with your friends, and be sure to subscribe to our channel. Thanks for listening.